So he, he, he's sitting down and he grabs me by uh, the shoulders. There's alcohol all, all over his breath. Um, and then he says, just randomly, he says, uh, don't ever, ever call me dad. Followed by, I don't like you. I hate you. You know, here, here's this gang uh, member. He says, uh, we're forming here. And, you know, we take care of each other. And, and when I heard those words, we take care of each other, it, it gave me that sense of family. He said, yeah, man, you know, if you ever run into any, any problems out here, uh, anybody wants to do anything to you, you know, once you belong to us, uh, we're family. We, we, we take care of one another. And So you, you, up until that time, you didn't know what that was like, did you? From the Family Life Podcast Network, this is Unfavorable Odds. I'm Kim Anthony. Unfavorable Odds is all about finding hope and help in those seasons of life when things get pretty difficult. You know, Jesus has promised us that whenever we walk through those dark, tough times, He's always going to be with us. So on each episode of this podcast, we'll be talking with people who have learned how, in those very difficult times, to draw their strength from Jesus. To say that Casey Diaz was violent would be an understatement. He even described himself as an absolute animal. He in no way valued human life. Casey was a gang leader in Los Angeles who went to prison for second-degree murder. And even in prison, he was still running things as the shot caller, which is also the name of his book. Well, I had a candid conversation with Casey about how he went from a life of violence to a supernatural encounter with Jesus. And what you'll learn from our conversation is that There is no one that God cannot reach. Your book is fascinating. It is an incredible story of God's redemption. And as I was reading the book, it reminded me of when I lived back in Los Angeles in 1990. I lived near the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and Wilton, near Koreatown. Oh, wow. You were down the street from me. Yes. I I was uh, off of uh, 3rd in New Hampshire for a while. Okay. Yeah. As I was reading your book, I was actually looking up my—on Google Maps, I was looking up and saying, oh, my goodness, he was only blocks from me. So I would sit outside of my apartment on the fire escapes at night, and I would watch the helicopters— circle the neighborhoods, shining their spotlights, searching for people. And as I was reading your book, I realized that just a couple of years before, they were searching for you. Yeah, yeah. So let me take you back to the early 70s when your family immigrated. Tell me a little bit about that. So um, I came here when I was two years old. And, um, uh, you know, we settled uh, right around uh, by downtown Los Angeles. Uh, which is the, the Rampart District of LA. And um, I remember, uh, obviously I didn't remember being two and, and, and coming here, but 
right around five or six is when you really start to notice things and you're aware uh, of, of certain areas and, and blocks and stuff like that. So uh, we, as far as I can remember, we, we settled in um, by Hoover Elementary School, which is, uh, I mean, a walking distance to MacArthur Park, Lafayette Park. Mm -hmm. uh, those are very uh, well-known uh, uh, areas in downtown Los Angeles. So we, we lived around there at first. Growing up pretty regular, I would think, still the generation that played baseball outside <laughs> and, you know, we threw rocks at each other. Uh, you know, we were just kids. And so um, at the beginning of that stage, I, I really didn't see anything wrong with my life. Uh, you know, I don't think you know that you're poor at that time, you know, or, or that, you know, that you're not in a good place. Those things are just, you know, they're, they're not in, the, in your frame of thought until around when I started noticing that my, my father getting drunk. Uh, then at, at that time, you start being aware of your surroundings and and elements that were in our apartment in our where we lived that just didn't seem uh just didn't seem right. Mm -hmm. So what was it like for you in your home? My, my mom uh, for the most part uh, she's always been a hard worker. Uh I mean to this day she retired and she still has to go do something, you know. Mm -hmm. She's old school like that. Um so I remember her uh leaving the, the apartment very early in, in the morning, wouldn't come back until about maybe like 10, 11 at night. She always held uh, two jobs. She was a seamstress in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, I always saw her growing up as a hardworking uh, lady. And uh, my father was quite the opposite. Um, hardly ever worked. Uh, I, you know, as a kid, I remember uh, going in through his stuff, you know, when no one was home, and which was a lot of times. Mm. Uh, I remember running in for the very first time to uh, portions of marijuana at that time. Okay. And I had no clue that. Uh, he was actually selling uh, on the side, and and um, he was always drunk. And then uh, he'd come home, and um, you know, here's my mom coming in from pulling that many hours, mm -hmm. uh, and then getting brutally beat by him for no reason at all. So those things, you know, they they stay in your in your uh, in your mind, and 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 you start to to go, this this can't be normal um, as a kid, and you you know, you're a young boy. You try to uh, make them stop. You can't, you know. That, that, so all those things, there's mixed emotions of, of all that. And it, it was just a, a hard time uh, very early on. So he was abusive to your mother. How did he treat you? To me, it was more of a verbal abuse than, than it was physical abuse. Um, uh, for whatever reason, he just didn't like me. And I remember I, I in the book, I share uh, an incident where there was alcohol on his breath. He takes me into the kitchen, he's sitting down on, on a seat. And we lived in an apartment that was probably maybe, maybe 700 square feet. Mm -hmm. It was a very small uh, apartment. So he, he, he's sitting down and he grabs me by uh, the shoulders. There's alcohol all, all over his breath. Um, and uh, and then he says, just randomly, he says, uh, don't ever, ever call me um, dad. Mm. And uh, followed by, I don't like you, I hate you. Uh, those words, you know, I have a 10-year-old. It doesn't even hit my mind to ever, ever say something like that to my kids. I have two daughters that uh, I would do anything for them. I, I just, it, it really damages a, a young uh, kid when, when you hear yeah, your parent. It's not even a stepdad. It's mm -hmm. my, my biological father telling me that. So that, that, that really uh, made a dent in my life. Mm. At one point, you had had enough. 
and you walk into the room, you find your dad, he's passed out, and you decide to take matters into your own hand. Um, I remember I walked into the apartment, and um, at this time, I, I think we had just moved to, uh, I don't remember what, what city, it was still in Los Angeles, but he was laid, laid out on the floor. And I remember his face being very close to, you know, back in those days, the, the older uh, uh, units had these uh, metal uh, furnaces. They, they kind of looked like accordions. Yeah, like a radiator. Like a radiator, yes. exactly. Yes. So his face was uh, right next to that. And I remember in uh, many occasions when my uncle was there and they would turn that on, they'd use a, a lighter or a match. And that's how it got started. You kind of open the, the gas and then, and then you, you lit it and that's how you got the heat. Okay. So I, I was aware that, that, that the gas was there. I, I just knew it. And so what I did is I, I pushed his face as close as possible as I could mm-hmm. uh, to the furnace and I opened up the, the, gas, uh, the gas on it. And uh, I mean, you could hear it and you could smell it. And it was racing out of, the, uh, out of that thing uh, pretty fast. And uh, my my full intention was, you know, if, if he just breathes this and falls asleep, maybe maybe I could get rid of him. Uh, he'd probably been there maybe a minute or so or two when my mom uh, walked in on us, uh, walked in on me uh, doing this. And, you know, you could hear the whistling of, of the gas going. And she looks at me, she looks at my dad on the floor, and right away she says, oh, well, what are you doing? Well, what's going on here? And I remember telling her, I, I said, uh, you know, just l- let it happen and, uh, you know, I'll take the blame. I'll, 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 he'll never hurt you again. So in my heart that day, that that particular day, I, my heart already uh, settled that I was willing to uh, take, take the life of my father, uh, you, know, you know, to protect my mom. And, that's, and I remember she w- was very um, alarmed. She raised, turned off the gas and uh, she said, you know, you don't do that. Don't ever do that. My mom was just so uh, protective of everybody. I mean, you know, she, she couldn't hurt a fly. And yet uh, the pain that she was going through with my, my father just uh, abusing her like that, it, it was hard to deal with. I can imagine. So you weren't getting the love from your father at home. You were watching him abuse your mother. And there really wasn't much you could do about that. And so you turned to others to get the kind of love that you were looking for. When did that happen? How old were you? I was 11 years old when I actually uh, joined um, uh, this street gang in Los Angeles. This is very early on in the, in the 80s. The, the gang culture in Los Angeles is just starting to catch wind. You know, they've been there since the 40s, but now they're, it's like getting a second wind and, and, and it's going. And when you leave a young kid uh, unsupervised for that many hours, that kid's going to get into devious things and and, and it's going to test the waters. And, and I think that's what I was uh, actually doing is, you know, here here's this gang uh, member and he's, you know, kind of talking to me. I remember him writing graffiti on the floor with a spray can. That was the initial conversation that I had with, with this gang member. And I remember asking him, I was like, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm writing my, I'm hitting up uh, my, my neighborhood. And I didn't know what he meant by that. And I said, what does that mean? He says, uh, well, uh, I'm from Rockwood. And he says, that was a gang we're forming here. And, you know, we take care of each other. And, and when I heard those words, we take care of each other, it, it gave me that, at that time, uh, a sense of family. We take care of each other. 
He said, yeah, man, you know, if you ever run into any, any problems out here, uh, anybody wants to do anything to you, you know, once you belong to us, uh, we're family. We, we, we take care of one another and, you know, we take care of business. And uh, So you, you, up until that time, you didn't know what that was like, did you? I, I didn't, you know, I, I had seen, you know, at eight years old, I, uh, in one of those buildings that we lived in with mm-hmm. um, the fire escapes, I witnessed uh, uh, three men being executed right in the alley of where we lived. And I remember in that very fire escape, um, I was sitting down. My legs are dangling from this fire escape. And this guy uh, um, takes out three guys, uh, took their life right in front of my face. I was on third floor. He didn't know I was there. And I saw the whole thing. Um, so uh, you, you're looking at that kind of violence. And then you have, you know, this gang member telling you, hey, uh, these aren't nice streets. So if ever you need backup, we're here for you. It was so intriguing. And then I saw the fun uh, what I thought was fun at that time, you know, that they came in with nice cars and there was always girls around them. Gangs started to become very popular. So you had, you know, all these uh, all these girls all around and then you had all these guys just hanging out and it just looked like what I, I could do this. Yeah, like a glamorous lifestyle. Yeah. Let me take you back to that moment when you witnessed a triple homicide. That has to do something to the mind of a young boy. Yeah. It made me um, look at um, at life in a different way, because here's this guy, an adult, and he walks right out of his car. He parks his car, walks right out of his car, and then he walks over to these three guys that are uh, walking up an alley and um, goes into his coat and then puts one bullet in each single one of them so that they can't go anywhere and uh, then continues to unload the revolver and continues uh, unloading until these three guys are dead. I think that at at that moment, it was when I thought life is nothing. It's easy to get rid of somebody. And this is how you deal with people in life. I mean, so you see that violence and just the the ugliness of watching your father relentlessly beat your mom. I mean, in leaving her in pools of blood. And then you see that kind of violence outside. It, it just really does something to your psyche, to your to your brain. As a young boy, um, that life is is kind of cheap. Mm. So you joined this gang at age eleven, was it? Eleven, yes. Were you initiated? I was initiated. I was jumped in by three other gang members. Um, uh, if you're a Southern California gang member, um, most Southern California gang members that are Hispanic. Mm-hmm. We have what's called jump in, and it usually it, it's about a 13-second count where uh, three or four and up to ten gang members will uh, beat you for that long, and then that's your initiation. And then there's more to that as far as, um, you know, they'll send you out, out on what, you know, what we call the mission or a hit. Mm. So it just starts progressively becoming worse and worse. So what was it like for you in the gang? I know there was a lot of violence, but... From reading your book, it also sounds like you were receiving at the same time a lot of love, at least the, more love than you were receiving at home. Yeah, I, I think the part that's dangerous about the gang culture is that it gives individuals, uh, young people, the, the, the false sense of family. And when you're looking for validation, when you're looking for uh, that, that pat on the back that you want from an older person and the gang's giving that to you, it really throws you for a loop because you think, well, I mean, somebody's cheering me on here. 
somebody's looking out for me. You know, if if I had, you had that kind of thing. And and so for a young person uh, that's in the ghetto, that's in a in a very drug infested, gang infested area, you, you look at that kind of validation from a gang member, or a leader, or or someone in there, it gives you a bad perception. And and uh, you know, when you're young, you're not thinking. You're you're just going, wow, they like me. It, it, it's not real, but it's real to that young person that's looking for a pat on the back. Yeah, it's real at the time. Now, I don't want to upset any of our listeners, but I do want them to get a picture of what you were like back then. Can you describe some of the things that you've done, your mindset as you lived this gang life? You know, uh, when we first started this book, um, I had to be very careful on um, you know, I'm not glorifying some of this, these these things that I've done. And, and we wanted to be careful with that. But at the same time, you know, we're living in a generation and in a time where <laughs> violence is so prominent. You know, one of the, of the moments that um, uh, somebody asked me uh, uh, on another interview, um, what are those things that you re- that you regret? And one of them is, um, and I'll share it with you guys, I, I didn't go into full details with, with, with him, but I'll, I'll go in a little bit uh, deeper with you guys. Okay. I went into a rival gang territory of this gang, and, and um, we found one of their gang members there. We started chasing him. He ran. Uh, I was very close to him, and uh, I didn't know where he was running to. Um, he was just running away, to, as far as I was concerned, and uh, I ended up capturing him. Uh, he ran inside of his apartment, and his family was in there. Yeah, his mom, his other uh, adults were there. And he tripped over a small coffee table as he ran into this uh, apartment. And uh, I ended up stabbing this guy um, multiple times in front of his family. And, and I remember um, hearing his, his mother say, uh, my son, my son in Spanish. Um, and he was so scared and frightened. I mean, it, there was male adults there that, that were frozen. I mean, they couldn't, uh, I, I guess the fear of uh, them trying to even stop me was, was just uh, overwhelming. And, and they just they just froze. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of my gang members holding up the door while I kept, while I kept stabbing this guy. And this was part of an, uh, an initiation. Uh, we had just jumped in one of our, uh, uh younger, uh, gang members at that time. And I remember, um, we got in the car and, uh, and this, this guy that we had just jumped in, uh, this kid, I looked at him and, uh, I licked the screwdriver in front of him. And I said, uh, this is what we do. If you ever, if you ever rank out, is what I told them. It's a street name for somebody that would, like, let's say, chicken out of going on a, a mission or anything like that. Said so if you ever rank out, um, I'll personally, because I jumped you in, I'll personally come after you. And the fear in his eyes uh, was overwhelming, and I, I, he knew. I think he knew at that moment that he had just perhaps made a mistake but he couldn't reverse that mistake. Mm. And we came to find out later on that this gang member that, that I ended up stabbing them uh, would end up um, uh, in a wheelchair forever. Mm. Um, it, those things, you know, it, as a believer now, as an adult now, yeah. you, you, you wish that you had the power to turn back that clock yeah. and, uh, and not do stuff like that. Um, but unfortunately you can't. And, um, what's done is done. And, um, you know, and, and I have to be careful because the enemy uh, tends to throw um, those images from time to time uh, when I'm going through things, uh, you know, 
and I, I got to remain very prayerful and and um, and on my feet to not allow those thoughts because I, I understand that you know God has forgiven me of all that. The tremendous part about Christianity is that God pursues people to the ends of the earth. I mean, no matter how dark you you've ever been in your life, how, how wicked you've ever been in your life. If you repent and you call on his name, um, he's there to save. I mean, that it, it just does something to me that that God would even forgive someone like me. Yeah. As you were telling the story and I'm looking at your face, I see um, the remorse. I see the sorrow that those were things that you did in your past. And I could see why and how easy it could be for those memories to come up again. But you have a new life now. You've met the Savior in an incredible way, which we will get into a little later. But I, I want to come back to this point where, you know, you have literally put a man in a wheelchair. You, you've stabbed him with your weapon of choice, which was a screwdriver. And usually you would get away with things. You got away with a lot of things. But there came a point where the table started to turn. You were in, I think it's Dino's on Pico. At that point, um, uh, and this is one of those things where, you know, you're not looking for trouble. Um, I was simply having a, a meal at this uh, little hole in the wall by myself and uh, a truck full of a, of a rival gang uh, uh, happened to see me and caught me uh, slipping uh, in, in that neighborhood. They jumped out of the truck. They came into the little restaurant and uh, a fight uh, ensued right then and there. Um, I knew that I was going to be overtaken very fast if I didn't run. Uh, well, outside of that uh, restaurant, uh, I had a stolen car there in which I uh, jumped in. And under the seat of that car uh, was a sawed-off shotgun. And um, the, the guy, the first guy that was uh, after me uh, was carrying a crowbar. And uh, as I turned around, I, I remember jumping in the car and I reached for it. There was one shot. It was a one-shot uh, shotgun. As I turned around, um, he was about to hit me with that crowbar. And that's when I pulled the trigger. And um, unfortunately, um, on that first shot, um, his life ended. And I kind of went into a panic mode. Um, and I stepped out of the vehicle and proceeded to um, unload and load several times more. It was broad daylight. Um, it freaked everybody out. Um, I could hear people screaming, yelling. Uh, his gang members dispersed, and they just all ran different directions. And I ran. I, I ran daytime, and uh, I was able to get away for 21 days before I, I was captured. Did you expect to be captured, or did you think that you would get away with it just like you had gotten away with so many other things? I, I don't think I was thinking anything. I, I think it was just the one thought that, that came to my mind is, there it is, you know, it, that's done. Uh, I remember I, I, I ran away I, I, and um, I hid in um, abandoned construction buildings. I remember staying at one particular, uh, it was like an apartment building that was almost done, but they had left alone for some reason. So I, I ended up staying there for, uh, I want to say like maybe a week or so. And it was carpeted. There was running water. There was no power. but So I'd stay there and I'd wake up early in the morning just in case uh, construction crews would come in. My my uh, gang member's mother uh, housed me as well for about another week. And uh, so I stayed with her. So 
uh, I was just moving, constantly moving. Um, and did I think I was going to get away? I, I don't know if I was thinking that. I, I think it was just kind of like you're in a blur because you know what you've done. So I think it's important for us to know how old you were at that time because you were not a grown man. No. I was uh, 16, 16 years old. Um, you know, uh, that time, uh, in that particular time in the 80s, uh, there was so many, it, it was a bloodbath in Los Angeles. The murder rate, I mean, if we look at the statistics uh, today, I mean, it, it was, you know, in the thousands of, of gang members getting uh, killed on those streets. Uh, so I was 16 years old and California was uh, just about fed up with um, the, the gang violence. So they took uh, extreme measures and, and a law came into place where they wanted to see how young uh, they can try young offenders uh, as adults. And so um, I ended up falling in, in, in that category of their experiment. And um, so it's um, being tried as an adult. Um, and what they would do is they would, you know, once you got found uh, uh, guilty and, and, and sentenced, uh, some of us uh, were allowed to go uh, to be sent to what's called the California Youth Authority. And um, California Youth Authority could keep you for until you're 25 years old. And then you would make the, you know, the switch to a California state prison, to an adult prison. Okay. Well, while I was in uh, CYA, there was another uh, gang member of mine that was there and he was in there for a, uh, a triple murder. Mm. They, they put that guy in the same unit with me. No, something's going to happen. You know, uh, you have two teens that absolutely have no care for life. And um, we ended up uh, uh, planning uh, the murder of another rival gang member while we were in there. And uh, we were uh, caught in the, in the very act of uh, I was strangling uh, a rival gang member. Um, and we almost uh, ended his life. Uh, if it wasn't for an alert uh, probation officer there, that guy would have ended up uh, dead as well. Mm -hmm. and from that point on, uh, the state of California said that rehab is not for these guys, and, and we would end up being shipped to uh, L.A. County Jail okay. and to uh, to reorganize uh, and, and then send us to uh, state prison. What was state prison like for you? Walk me through the trip there. What did that look like? What did it feel like? What were you thinking? You know, you have these uh, Ivy Leagues of, of prisons. You have Pelican Bay, you have the Corcoran Shoe, and then you have New Folsom. And those are the three prisons that every gang member, every organized criminal wants to to get there. That's hmm. if, if you've been to any of these three, you've uh, you, you've made it. You know, wow. uh, in that type of uh, uh, mentality and lifestyle. So for me, uh, uh, I really didn't care. I mean, I, I you know I continued my my assaults in there, uh, I continued uh, in mayhem uh, in there, and uh, I was placed in what's called the gang module in uh, downtown Los Angeles in the, the Men's Central Jail. And that's where they house all the gang leaders of LA. If you're a valid gang leader, that's where you're gonna be at. So they, they put they put me there and then I was transferred to, uh, I was there for a while and then I was transferred to uh, Wayside uh, to 2400 and uh, that unit in Wayside was, uh, it was the old um, uh, maximum security uh, prison there or jail. I was housed there for, with um, about another 300 murderers in there. And and you kind of just wait to, to catch the, the chain is what we called it. Catch the chain, explain that. 
So that's a term that we use uh, for uh, when you're getting transferred from uh, county jail to a state prison. Okay. So you're catching the pain. Uh, you know, you're waiting for the chains to come upon you mm. and be escorted to your next des destination. So uh, I was there and um, I went to um, what's called Delano State Prison. And uh, I was housed there for uh, 120 days. Uh, there is where they evaluate you. So they, they want to make sure that they, um, uh, that they, you know, cross their T's, dot their I's with each individual inmate in there. And California, the CDC, California Department of Corrections, had a, uh, and still has, I believe, a scoring system. So from one to 100, wherever your points fell, that's how they determine the kind of security uh, was needed for each individual inmate. So I went in there with um, 97 points. Oh, goodness. Uh, meaning that... That was a shoe term. A shoe term. What's the shoe? The, so the shoe term is is uh, the segregated housing unit of CDC. This is the prison inside the prison. This is uh, where they house the worst of the worst. You're going to be in there for 23 hours out of the day. You got one mandatory hour, state required uh, hour outside of your cell. And, and so having 97 points, I, I remember one of the guards, uh, one of the CEOs, uh, uh, he looked at me and said, uh, you know where you're going? And I, and I was so prideful, so just careless, didn't care about life or anything. And I said, it doesn't matter where I'm going. And yeah. I don't care. You know, and, and I remember him saying, you're going to the shoe program. You know, how young you are and you've wasted your life. And, um, you know, I, it, it didn't matter. His words just at that point in my life, life didn't matter. You know, um, and I was almost like proud to earn that type of name in there. So uh, I get transferred from Delano, and I end up going to New Folsom State Prison. Um, I remember we, we got there, and I think one of the most alarming things is when you get there and you see the, this giant wall, just massive wall, and you see COs, correctional officers, in nothing but riot gear along the wall. And you're talking about a lot of guards in full riot gear, and they're about to welcome you. You know, and uh, and it's almost like the movies and you have the gunners. You see the gunners up there with mini 14s pointing at your head. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember uh, they, they took me out of the bus and immediately uh, took me to a, um, a holding uh, cell there. They gave me a little brief discussion. You know, they, and I remember the warden and the gang coordinator telling me, we know who you are. We know what you've done. We know your crime, your files in our hand. And we're going to make sure that you serve the rest of your sentence in the shoe program in solitary confinement. I want to ask you something. I want to take you back to where you were serving time before New Folsom. Yeah. There was a reason they sent you there, and it's the title of your book. You played a role while you were in prison that is one of the most respected positions, you know, as a gang member who's incarcerated. Can you tell us what that was about? Well, there's a, an election process uh, in there that happens in order for you to become a shot caller. You gotta have a good name, a good standing within um, the criminal um, uh, empire, if you wanna call that. And for me, I had a lot of respect uh, from, and I think it was more fear than it was respect, that people just didn't cross my line, my, my way. And uh, I had uh, both uh, enemy, rival gang members that, that knew that if I caught them, it, it would be a bad day for them. One of the, the uh, eye-opening moments for me was when I was in Wayside in 2400, 
and I was brushing my teeth and uh, here comes this rival gang member and uh, as I'm brushing my teeth he, you know I washed up and and he's standing there and he says uh, you're Casey right and I said yeah and he calls out my name my, my gang name mm -hmm. he says I was there when you uh, when you stabbed my my homeboy in the eye uh, I don't know if you remember that I said yeah I remember that and he says uh, good to meet you and he stretches out his hand and shakes my hand and I thought kind of weird you yeah. know that, that that here's my enemy and this is a, from a gang that's very well known both to the media to it was an 18th street gang member um and he was the leader himself mm. and for him to stretch out his hand and and say uh good to meet you you know you're aware that i stabbed one of your own, very own yeah. and you're shaking my hand and when you have the respect of your enemies and your friends uh in that kind of environment you know, there's that election that everybody gets around you. And, and I remember that's what happened. And uh, I was put in charge of all the prison made shanks in there. Uh, so I, at that point, I, I became the one that if anything needed to be done, you came to me. Uh, if anything, anybody needed to be hit, uh, it had to go through me. Explain what a hit is. Yeah, I was the one that gave the orders to whether someone got stabbed or not, whether somebody got jumped or not, uh, you know, assaulted or not, whatever uh, you want to call it that that was the decision that was left solely to me at that moment so here i am going into new Folsom into delano and then to new Folsom with that kind of a jacket mm -hmm. on me uh, i remember when i got to new Folsom. I, in fact um when i first got uh in front of other inmates there i was greeted like like a king i mean i was greeted very well they had um a lot of um stuff that they shouldn't have already in my cell what? And it was it was disorganized that things that I didn't even ask for were already there. Um, it's very organized. And I think the public would be very surprised at how organized crime works in there. And, and the gang culture in there is, is very, um, it, it's very organized. How does that happen? How do you, you know, get into your your space and you already have some items there? It's just a, a matter of uh, respect. And, and you have um, guys that our uh, trustees, uh, other inmates that uh, are able to uh, roam around the prison for whatever reason. Okay. And those are the ones that are used to by other shot callers to take care of people like me when I walked into these places. Okay. So what was your time like in New Folsom? Uh, well, uh, the beginning was, um, you know, spending a lot of time in, uh, in solitary confinement. You're given a pair of white boxers, white t-shirt, uh, a roll of toilet paper, and that's all you have. I mean, uh, this was solitary confinement to the other most. You're in an eight by 10 cell. It's about the size of a parking space. Uh, maybe in your living room, you might have a, a rug, an area rug. That's about eight, eight by 10. Just enough to stretch out your arms from left and right. Very small, you have a toilet there, a sink, and a concrete bunk, and that, that's it. That, that's all you were given. You were given no, no more material than that. You had no TV, you had no uh, library time, you had none of that. They made sure that every shot collar was um, was housed uh, at maximum security uh, potential, and 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 uh, you know even to go to a shower. Um, I can give you a, a little uh, insight to that. To go to the shower, you're just walking maybe what 15 to 20 feet from my cell to uh, the shower stall, and you're having to be extracted from that cell by four to five guards in in, in, in right gear. And they're chaining you, they're putting five-point restraints on you to walk you 
20 feet to a shower stall and then handcuffing you one one of your hands was on, uh, the only one that's that's free to to wash up and you only have about three minutes to take a cold shower mm. and uh, then you were escorted by four to five guards in prison gear and in, in right gear right back to yourself uh, the movements were very calculated very strict it, it was very routine and you're there just with your thoughts you're you're, you're there by yourself and you, <laughs> if you don't have a strong mind you know um you're going to break. And, and I saw many men uh, break in there. I, I, you hear so many men that are, you know, six foot two, six foot four, you know, 19 inch arms, 18 inch arms, muscle bound guys that would crawl uh, and get into a fetal position because being in a tank like that, in a little cell like that, you know, one could start very easily, start hearing voices, um, you know, and, and just losing their mind. And we, we saw that continually in there you know the guy that when i got to to the shoe in new Folsom, uh, the gentleman uh, on my right the cell on my right he had been in there for 10 years already in solitary confinement yeah and, and you know uh, i had just got there and he's been there for 10 years in this little cage and here's the thing i, I think as far as solitary from confinement goes you know they put us in there because we needed to be put in there mm -hmm. um, we were predators we were violent men and we didn't care and so I think that, that it was necessary for the state of California to, to keep individuals like us in that kind of uh, segregation. Mm -hmm. That needed to happen. Uh, it stopped a lot of the movements. Uh, it stopped a lot of the gang hits. Okay. That still was carried on, but I think it, 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 it put a dent in the organization as a whole. How long was your sentence? And then how long did you have to stay in the shoe? So uh, I was sentenced to, to uh, 12 years, eight months. And, um, you know, back then, they weren't giving lengthy sentences like they do now. Back then, you'd got, you know, 15 years, uh, 15 years to life. They, they weren't giving huge sentences. So for me, I mean, uh, but prior to me uh, uh, getting sentenced to, to almost 13 years, there was guys that were doing the same thing and, and only getting seven years hmm. because you were young. You know, you're, you're a, a juvenile. Oh. So all you did was four years, seven years. Uh, so when I got to almost 13, that was a big deal uh, back then, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so uh, I ended up doing uh, uh, three years and some change in, in the shoe program in solitary prior to uh, me uh, becoming born again. You had an unexpected visitor to the shoe. Yeah. Tell me about her. Uh, <laughs> she's um, a special lady in, in my life that God used. Um there was this little uh, church that came uh, to visit us in solitary and um, it's a little Baptist church. And this lady uh, by the name of Frances Proctor, she's a little black lady. She's probably about maybe five foot two, five foot three, but with the boldness of, of a lion. Uh, this lady had the love of Christ and um, loved what she did uh, and believed in, in that God could change anyone. And on this particular, you know, when you're in the shoe program, you lose um, all concept of time. Um, you don't know if it's day or night. Uh, there's no watches, there's no clocks. Um, the only way you know that it's uh, lunchtime is because of your meals. That's how you kind of know the time. But you don't have exact times. So this, this church you would come only once a month on a Thursday, last Thursday of the month. And um, they'd come, and, and this one particular time is when... Um, there was a conversation being held 
outside of the of the cells, and I hear this this lady, and she's saying, uh, "Is there an inmate inside that cell?" And I didn't know they were talking about me at all. And the guard said, "Yeah, the, there is, uh, but you don't want anything to do with that." This guard discouraged her several times, three times uh, to be exact, and Francis would not let this go. And I remember hearing her, Jesus came for everybody. Can I approach his cell? And this guard said, um, well, that's Diaz. You go ahead, right ahead, but you're wasting your time. And she approached my cell. And I remember the first question that she asked me is uh, how I was doing. She said, uh, and she had a very uh, Southern accent, mm-hmm. uh, older lady. And, and, and she says, uh, in this very southern accent, I'm not going to try it because uh, I'll ruin it. But but she says, um, she says, "How you doing?" You know, and I said, uh, "Oh, I couldn't be doing better." And she laughed and she said, "That was a dumb question." I said, "It's all right." And I said, uh, "I said, what, what's going on?" She says, uh, "Well, I wanted to invite you to my Bible study, our Bible study, and um, you know that, that you know it'd be good to to see you." Uh, to talk to you about uh, about the Lord and and I remember I wasn't disrespectful I just didn't want to buy what she was selling mm-hmm. you know and I told her I said uh, I'm not interested in any of the, the religious stuff I, uh, I'm good so you know I don't want you to waste your time and she says um <clears throat> she goes listen I believe that God's going to use you and <laughs> you know, you're hearing this lady going do you know where you're at you know it, that was my first thought. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're nuts. What are you talking about? You know, and she says, uh, I am going to pray for you and Jesus is going to use you. And that just blew my mind away. I just thought this lady, you know, if I thought she was crazy, now I know she's crazy. <laughs> there's, there's no, who's this Jesus? And what are you talking about? And I didn't say that to her. I just, I said, no, I said, you can go ahead and, and, and say what you want, but I'm not interested. She said, would you mind if I stop in when I come here? With my church, would you mind if I came here to your cell and just uh, I'm only going to have like about maybe two to four minutes talking to you? Is it okay if I come and chat with you and pray for you? And I said, Yeah, you can do whatever you want. I said, But uh, I'm letting you know right off the bat, I don't want anything to do with, with any religious stuff. Mm-hmm. And she said, All right. Well, she put it in her heart, God put it in her heart to intercede for me for a year and six months. This lady went into intercessory prayer, and uh, uh, she prayed for me. Uh, she prayed for me every single time. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, she'd come and she would tell me every time before we we had two to four minute conversations all the time, once a month. And she would tell me, "I'm praying for you. Jesus is going to use you." And uh, after uh, some time in there, I had an encounter with um, with Christ in there, and uh, that would change my life uh, forever. What happened to you that day when you encountered Christ? I was um, it's like a, a normal day type of deal. I was laying down on my uh, bunk on my slab, and um, I remember I had my hands behind my head, laying down, and I'm looking at um, uh, on the wall. Nothing else to stare at there. Um, usually I would, you know, do push-ups, uh, jumping jacks, 
it, whatever type of calisthenic I can do, mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, take up time. But at this moment, I'm just laying there. And uh, right on my wall, I start seeing what looked like a movie reel, like an old movie reel, you know, the, the little films. And, and I could hear the sound of the that that sound of uh, of, a, of a turning uh, film reel. It was at that moment that I, I started seeing um, my whole life being played back from childhood. I mean, things that only I knew are being played on that wall. The first thought that came to my mind was, this isn't real. You know, I'm awake. I'm not on drugs. I'm not, I'm fully in my five senses. Now, uh, let me rewind here for, for a second. But remember the guy that was next door to me that, that was in there for 10 years? Yes. That guy, um, at some point, yeah, he broke and started hallucinating and thinking that there was uh, ducks in his cell. Mm. Completely lost his mind from the solitude in there. And, um, I mean, we had normal conversations, and from one minute to the other, that was it. It was like somebody just turned off the switch on him, and he thought that there was ducks in the cell, uh-huh. and no one convinced him that there was no ducks in the cell. Um, he had completely lost it. He would talk to himself after that. And um, and you could hear him. What sounded like him playing with ducks. I mean, he, he lost it. So did you think that was happening to you? That's exactly what I thought. Uh, you know, I, the first thought that came on my mind when I saw this is, that's it. You know, this is where I lose it. You know, uh, I said, Piggy thinks he has ducks in a cell. And, and I'm watching a movie here. So at any moment, somebody's going to bring me some popcorn because mm-hmm. there's no way that this is real, you know, and, and I'm watching it, though. I'm wide awake. It's not in my sleep. I'm awake and aware and I'm watching this. And then it would show me footage of me growing up, events that only I would know. And then it would kind of go blank and I would see a guy cr- carrying his cross. Now, Francis never really explained to me. There was no time for her to explain to me the life, death, and resurrection of, of Jesus or anything like that. Mm-hmm. She was just coming in with, with conversation and the love of Christ. And she would talk to me about the Bible. But, I, you know, when you're a non-believer, that you, you might as well just talk to a wall because if you're not open, you, you're not going to hear anything. You're not going to understand anything. Yeah. So even when she would quote scripture, I, I didn't know what that was. I, I It was foreign to me. So here I am, and, and, and I'm seeing this guy. She hadn't explained this to me, and I never had seen this. But I'm seeing this guy carrying a cross, and I can see crowds around him that are just angry crowds. And it looks like they just want to get their hands on this guy. And I remember seeing whoever's carrying this cross, he's looking at me. I can't see his face, but this guy is looking at me. And then it kind of go dark again Mm -hmm. and back to uh, scenes. And everything was in order. So it wasn't like... When one scene, I'm, you know, 16, and then it goes back to me being five. It was just in order to the, and, and I start seeing, you know, events that I, you know, stabbings that I did, uh, robberies and people that I tied up in the Honan Yards. I'm seeing it being played out. And this, the same guy with a cross walking. I saw when the nails came in the hands and the feet, he's on the floor on the cross. I could see the cross coming up. And him on it. And something interesting happened at that moment. Because um, at around eight years old, 
uh, when we were still playing out on the on the streets, baseball, football. I remember I uh, my birth name is Darwin, but I never liked my name. I you know uh, <laughs> we were playing baseball, and I remember telling the kids. You know, I gathered all these kids that we were playing. I said, from here on out, you're gonna call me Casey. And I remember everybody looking at me like, what's that about? I said, yeah, you're not going to call me Darwin anymore. You're going to call me Casey. I don't know where (laughs) I grabbed that from. I don't know where it came from. I just kind of grabbed that name. And then from that point on, everybody started calling me Casey, including my mom, my dad. Everybody calls me Casey to this day. I mean, that, that name stuck. I think that's one of those things when you look back and you go, God put leadership inside of me. Mm way back then i just didn't know how to nobody showed me how to maneuver it nobody knew showed me how to be a good leader a wholesome leader and so when you don't know something you're gonna yeah. misuse it mm-hmm. you know so all this time i've been calling being called casey and so I, here's this guy on, on the cross and I, I know that he's looking at me i can't i don't know i can't describe his face i, I can't see his face but i know he's looking at me and then he says Darwin, I did this for you. I remember his face uh, just falling, just, you know, doing that. And I could hear the audible breath of God just coming out of his body. Just, mm-hmm. I remember that cell. I'll never forget it. I could hear the, like, like that, very vivid, just very, it was just so audible. And Nobody had ever taught me how to pray. Nobody had ever, you know, led me in a sinner's prayer or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I knew right then and there that this was God. And um, I knelt in the middle of that room in that cell. I remember asking him, I said, you know, I- I'm sorry, God, for um, for stabbing this guy. And, you know, you know, maybe a normal person would say, you know, I'm sorry for being a lousy husband or a lousy politician. I don't know, whatever. For me, it I'm sorry for for stabbing that guy and for stabbing the other guy and for tying these people up and and there's this amount of peace that came into this the cell at that moment was so extreme and so overwhelming that I remember I just wept I I wept uncontrollably in the middle of that cell and I could tell you that you could put me in next to a waterfall in the most beautiful place in the world Nothing will beat the freedom that I felt. In that cell. Nothing will ever feel that free. In that moment when I gave my life to Christ. After you surrendered your life to Christ, he told you to do something very specific when you left the shoe. What was that? He said, um, you're going to grab your, uh, your gang members and um, you're going to let them know this. Exactly. I want you to word for word was um, you're going to tell them that you no longer have anything to do with this, that you're now a Christian. And I thought, you know, well, okay, when I parole, when I get out of here, Matt, meaning when I paroled, because I was told that I would be in the shoe program until I paroled. And uh, lo and behold, um, shortly after hearing those words, those instructions, is when um, the gang coordinator and the the warden 
would come and, and open my cell. And their words were, we don't know why we're doing this, but you're going, we're going to put you in mainline, in regular population. I mean, it's still a level four yard. It's still a maximum security yard, but you're giving me freedom. <laughs> and that's like so unheard of. And then it dawned on me. That's why God had told me these instructions. And I remember as soon as I got to the yard on day one, um, I grabbed uh, some of the leaders there and there's these cement picnic tables that are out there in the yard. And uh, I grabbed one of them and, and I announced to them that uh, I would no longer have anything to do with this and that I was a Christian. And at that moment, you know, I don't think the public knows that feeling when, when your life is in danger at that point, you know, um, I remember I just turned around and slowly just kind of just walked away from me. And it was them telling me, you're done. You know, we're going to put a green light on you and, and, uh, and you're done. And when, when your gang is big enough or organized enough, what they'll do is they'll send one of your very own to uh, do the hit. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in my, in my uh, situation. And it, it, it was a tough um, uh, decision, but, you know, I, I didn't even think about it. Uh, it, it didn't bother me uh, doing it. I just didn't even think twice. Uh, I just knew that God had told me what to do and I'm just going to do it. So they, they sent one of my very own to to um, to do the hit. And um, usually hits are, are done in the morning during uh, line movements to the chow hall. And um, I remember the night before, they send this guy and, and they and you know he was very very upset with me, clearly upset with me. And he says, um, you know, they're asking me to to take you out. And uh, I remember uh, he's outside of my cell, I'm inside the cell, the sort the cell door's locked. And uh, I'm staring at him in this little wicket, this little window. And I told him, I said, you know, I know what you have to do. Um so I totally understand that, but uh, you know, I can't change my my situation here. I, I know. I know what I've, ex- I've experienced, and and so I got to follow through on this end, and uh, and whatever you have to do, you ha- you need to do it, you know. And uh, I'm gonna, I'm telling you right now, I said, uh, I forgive you for what you need to do, for what you're about to do. And he was so angry, and, it, and I said, you were under me. I understand what you need to do. This is not new for me. Do what you need to do. And he goes, no. He goes, and he interrupts me. And he says, if you change your story, uh, you know, we'll make something work. Mm-hmm. Why would he say that? That's something that you don't say. You know, you, you've been given orders to do something in there. You, you got to do them or your skin is on the line. And I looked at him and I said, no, man. I, I said, I can't change my story. Something happened to me I, that's undeniable. And I said, uh, so do your thing, man. I forgive you. Just go for it and do your thing. And um, so that night, it was a very long night. Uh, I prayed. I read my Bible. and. Um, I'm going to sit there and, and tell you that, you know, it didn't cross my mind. Uh, do I change my story? What, what do I do? It, it was a long night because by the morning, the chances are that they're going to come into to that cell and stab you to death. So the morning came and, and I remember I, I sat, I had promised God that I would never put my hands on another human being again. You know, and I think uh, as a young Christian, sometimes we make promises that <laughs> we should be making. <laughs> I didn't know any better, you know, but so I had promised God, uh, I'm not even going to stop these guys. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm just going to, I'm not even going to look at his face. I'm just going to let him stab me and 
call it a day. So I sat at the end of my uh, of my slab, and and here he came in with shanking hand and everything. And I was surprised that he didn't come in with other guys in there, with, with other inmates. Um, and I remember, I'm not looking at him. I could feel him like right there, and he says to me, um, he says I I can't do this, I can't do this to you, but whatever you're you're part of, uh, I'll roll with you. And he became the first guy that I led to Christ. Wow, that's incredible. Incredible. And the two of you stuck together, side by side. But you paid the penalty, didn't you? Yeah, for the for the next two years, uh, you know, there's a prison term called hard candy. And that's when um, shot callers are, are sending guys to brutally beat somebody down almost to death. They don't want you dead. They just want to put a hurting on you. So for the next two years, um, I, I had to endure that hard candy for many times um and everybody that ended up joining me and uh converting um uh, had to go through it um so it was a testing time it was a trying time and it was a painful time but you know i think all of us felt the same the same way because we all thought you know as a as a young christian you 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 kind of go well yeah i had this coming i mean how many people have i heard and so i was just completely fine i think all of us were we were all completely fine that whatever had to happen had to happen, and we're okay with that. But then uh, a big giant riot would take place at New Folsom, and um, it was a big racial riot that happened, and everyone that was persecuting us uh, was shipped out of this prison. Uh, when the beatings uh, stopped, that's when really evangelism kicked in and in there, and by the time I would parole, um, over 200 inmates would become uh, born again. 200 inmates became born again in a maximum security prison where there are a bunch of murderers. How in the world did you evangelize that prison population? Um, (laughs) The only way I I knew how to, uh, you know, I I did it, um, you know, God gives us the creativity to do so many things. I'm amazed at how uh, how he does things. But in there, we, we, we had these things called kites. And they were usually used by shot callers as well. Uh, there were little notes that we, we would pass out. And that note was either going to be a note telling one gang member, hey, yeah, we need um, this amount of, uh, amount of drugs being moved from this yard to the other yard, um, make it happen. Or it could be somebody's name in there that needed to be murdered or, or somebody that needed some hard candy in there. So I used that same element, and I would write <laughs> just simple notes in, in these little little kites. And in these notes, it would, it would always be simple. It would say, you know, if you're reading this, you took the time to read this. You took this note from my hand, so I know you're reading it. And I just want to let you know that, you know, Jesus loves you. There's a plan for, for God upon your life. This is not your end. And I said, look, you know, and I would share, you know, just briefly. You were under me. You had to do what I said at one point. Why would I give that up? Unless for certain something happened to my life while I was in solitary. And, and, you know, I would put a scripture in there and I would hand it. I knew that they couldn't be seen talking to me. They couldn't be seen Mm -hmm. doing anything with me. So I would find them by themselves at times and I would slip that note to them. And if they took it from my hand, I knew they were going to read it. 
And one by one, um, these men started coming to Christ. I mean, uh, you know, my just so you get a picture of this, my first meal there was uh, served by the, the Hillside Strangler. I don't, I don't know if you... Oh, I've heard, yes. Yeah. Oh, so he, he was the one that gave me my first meal there. Um, so this is the kind of people that were there. Oh, unbelievable. And uh, one of the founding members of MS-13 uh, gave his life to Christ in there uh, through, through my conversion. And it just spread like wildfire. And uh, we had one of the safest and most um, awesome uh, moments of ministry uh, while we were in the maximum security prison. So you allowed God to use you and your newfound freedom in Christ in a way that impacted so many who were in the similar situation. But then that wasn't enough. <laughs> you didn't just go after the prisoners. Who else did you go after? I went after guards. <laughs> guards. Uh, uh, I would slip uh, notes by my cell. You know, uh, when you were uh, sending out uh, mail uh, in there, um, you push your mail through the door and you would wedge it out and it would stick out far enough for the guard on that side of the cell to kind of grab your mail and you know, out it would go. Okay. And I would start uh, writing letters to, to guards and I would put them the same way that I would put a, a, a mail out through the slot and uh, and they would grab them and they would read them. And I remember um, uh, one of them, uh, a lady, uh, I, I don't talk about her in the book, but she came to Christ through one of those letters and, and, and so many other guards that, that just uh, were impacted by what Christ had did in my life. Um, they, they knew that, you know, they knew me before and then they knew that it come, uh, had come to Christ and authentically repented and, and I was okay with whatever would happen in, in there. When you say that you were okay with whatever would happen, it's because you knew that you had committed some serious crimes and you needed to pay. Well, the time came up for you to go before the parole board. What happened then? It, it, the day that I paroled, I, it, it, was, it, it came to me by a surprise. I had no clue um, what was going to happen. To me, I thought it was a normal day. Um, you know, I've been to parole boards many times, uh, year after year, and you just knew that you weren't going anywhere, you know? Uh, so this particular day, uh, I remember one of the Christian guys that would come into this prison from the outside. He came on this particular day. I, I remember seeing him, and I, I said, what are you doing here? He said, uh, came to pray for you. And I, I said, uh, <laughs> to pray for me. I said, uh, I'm just going up for a parole hearing. He goes, yeah, so I'm here to pray for you. I said, yeah, but I still got a couple of years on uh, over my shoulder here. It's pretty much going to go in there and, and come back out. He goes, well, let's pray before you go in there. I said, all right, well. And I remember being so adamant uh, about this. I said, you know I'm not going anywhere, right? And he <laughs> said, I get it, but let's pray. And so we prayed, and uh, then I walked in. My turn came in to step into the, to this parole board, and here they are. They started talking to me. It was always the same thing, you know. Uh, what have you been doing the last year since you were here on, uh, before the board? Have you completed your assignments, court orders, and all that? And I talked to them about that. And then the question came in, uh, in which they asked, why do you think we should let you out? Why would why why do you think we should parole you? <laughs> and 
I don't know what came upon me, but I said, uh, you shouldn't. I, I know what I've done, and uh, I know that I deserve every day in here. I accept what the court has given me. And I said, and in fact, I think that it only gave me just a little bit of what I really deserve. Wow. I really deserve to spend the rest of my life in here mm. for all the things that I've done. I, I deserve a life sentence here. I, I don't never deserve to, to get out. And I don't know what happened to them, but I remember their countenance just changed. And they took a little brief recess. I went back out. That minister was still there at the bench. And so we prayed uh, again. He wanted me to pray again. Then they called me back in. And I remember this board member, he says, uh, what are you going to eat today? <laughs> yeah, I thought, what am I going to eat today? And I said this to them. I said, well, I'd like to leave right now because if I don't, I said, um, I'm going to end up getting a sack lunch because back then uh, they were still giving three hot meals in, in mm -hmm. state prison. But if you, for some, whatever reason you didn't get chow, you'd get horrendous sandwich. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I told him, I said, I, I really want to avoid that sack lunch. And they, they laughed about it. And he says, um, we, we think that um, we've all agreed that something uh, has happened in your life in here. And we're granting you a, uh, parole this day and I couldn't believe it. when they push that paperwork in front of the desk just like the movies they all always do that mm -hmm. they push the paperwork it was a pink and a yellow slip to sign and I couldn't believe what I was seeing I could not believe that they were paroling me four years early I mean I, I just couldn't believe that <gasps> only God <laughs> only God for sure Take us to that point where you step into freedom. You walk through those prison doors into open space. No giant walls around you. No gunmen <laughs> pointing at you. What happened after that? Um, well, I, I, there was a little incident that happened right before I actually get out. Um, I'm walking out, and <laughs> I mean, freedom is I'm one glass door away from freedom. And there's two guys with milk crates and chains. And I'm, I have my box on my side. And uh, the, they buzz open the door. I open the door. And there's these two men there. And uh, one of them asked me, uh, you know, is Darwin Diaz? And I said, yeah. Let's go ahead and put the box down and turn around for us. And I thought, am I being arrested again? And, and the first thought was, Maybe it's a crime that it's been brewing, and, mm -hmm. and now I'm going to be going through another episode. And they chained me up, and they and um, you know I wasn't born here. I came here when I was two, and we legally came here. But when you commit a crime uh, in anywhere in the United States, uh, it could be different from state to state. But if you commit a crime and you're not a citizen, even if you're legally here, they can take away those the, the permanent residency, and they can send you back to your country. And so it was INS that came to meet me. They put me in a van and they took me to a federal uh, detention center. And I thought, you know, I've never been to El Salvador. I mean, I was born there, but I've never been there. This is going to be new. So I get to the detention center and I, I get put into this holding tank. It's a pretty big holding tank where there's two Hispanics in there. My Spanish is really bad. <laughs> it's really bad. It's, it's, it's awful. So... 
for whatever reason, I had two Spanish Bibles. I don't know how I had them, but I had kept them with me since I got born again all the way through, two of them. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys asked me, he says, you know, where are they sending you to? I said, uh, I was born in El Salvador, so I guess I'm going back over there. He goes, do you have family there? I said, uh, no, I don't have any family over there. My mom's out here and my dad's out here, but I said, that I know of, uh, we don't have any family over there. He said, so, well, are you going to call your, your mom? Are you married? I said, no, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I said, I don't want to bother my mom right now. That, that's going to really break her heart. So I'll probably just call her when I get to El Salvador. Wait, wait, wait. You're very calm about this. You're about to be deported. Yeah. And sent to a country where you haven't been to since you were two, where you don't have any... Um, real memory of, and you seem rather calm about that. How is that? And, and I was. <laughs> again, it's that peace that God just gave me, I guess, uh, since I got born again, that I just trust him. And so I you know, I started witnessing to to this guy, and, and I started letting him know who I was and what God had did in, in solitary confinement with me. And the next thing I know, man, we're holding hands, <laughs> and I'm leading to Christ. And I remember I went to the bars, to the gate, and the same federal agent that put the, the, the chains on me, that went and picked me up, he happened to be walking right by the cell doors. And I asked him, I said, hey, uh, sorry to bother you. I said, but in my box, there's a Spanish Bible in there. Um, can you open my box and, and give me that Bible? And he did. He gave it to me, and I gave it to him, and I started talking to him. And one of the questions that he asked me, he says, aren't you nervous about when you don't have family there? You don't practically you've never been there uh, aren't you afraid of what's going to happen over there i said uh, you know what man jesus is in my heart man I, I, and i just know wherever he takes me he's going to take care of me where, wherever that is so the second guy starts listening into my conversation with this guy and i start witnessing to him so now my conversation is aimed at him and i'm just witnessing to him i'm just sharing my faith with him lo and behold just a few minutes later all three of us are holding hands and he's coming to Christ. So I led him, <clears throat> I led him to Christ. And I remember I, I went back to the, to the gate and the same agent, I got his attention again. And I asked him, I said, there's a second Bible there. Can you give it to me? And he gave it to me. I gave it to this guy and we're talking and, you know, um, and, and I, I remember encouraging them. I said, you know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that they put me in the cell with you guys. And I want to encourage you that wherever you go, where you know, they were both Mexican. I said, when you go back to Mexico, you need to tell your family about Jesus and what, what happened to your life right here, right before you were deported. Let everybody know. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel because what you have, I mean, and these guys are weeping. These are not guys that are, I mean, they're weeping right as I'm telling them. They're weeping. And, you know, I remember one of, one of the scriptures that I quoted was one of Francis Proctor's favorite scriptures. It was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Don't lean on your own understanding in all thy ways. Acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. And I quoted that to them. And as I'm talking to them, this the same federal agent that got me the two Bibles that went and picked me up that put the chains on me, he says, uh, Diaz. Uh, I said, yeah. He says, do you have anything else in your in that cell? I said, uh, I don't have anything in there. No. He goes, uh, go ahead and uh, step out. Uh, somehow we've uh, made a mistake. <laughs> But we can't let you go home from here. 
we have to take you back to the state and the state of California will parole you. And those two guys looked at me and said, but we thought you weren't born here. I said, I wasn't. I was born in Salvador. I'm telling you the truth. And why are they letting you go? I said, it's the it's, it's what I've been telling you <laughs> since I've been here. You put your trust in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And then you leave it up to him to do whatever he's going to do with your life. And, and we hugged and everything. And we're going down this corridor back to the van. Um, I have no chains on me. And this federal agent tells me, he says, uh, let me ask you a question. He says, what, what happened back there? I said, they just came to Christ. I shared my story with them and they came to Christ. He said, you know, he says, I've been here for over 20 years. And every time I pick up somebody that claims to be Christian, and as soon as I put them in that tank, they're talking about how high they're going to get, how drunk they're going to get, who they're going to go sleep with. And they forget all about their Christian faith the minute that I put them in this tank. He says, this is the first time I've ever seen something like that. He said, uh, I'm a believer as well. Wow. And I remember we're walking and we got to the place where the, the, the crates, the chains were. And I'm standing right before him and he reaches over to the crate full of chains because he has to put restraints on me. Mm -hmm. And when he came up with the chains, he's looking at the chains, he's looking at me and I see this federal agent, his lip is shaking. And his eyes are watering. This is a federal agent. And he's telling me, I feel so guilty putting these chains on you. You don't deserve these chains. I, not in a million years would I have ever thought that a law enforcement officer, a, a federal agent, would have that kind of heart. And I remember I stretched out my hands and, and, and I told him, I said, you know, it's your job. Um, it's all good. You know, uh, uh, it's all good. Don't feel bad. And I said, you know, this is the, the last of the world, so it's all good. And so he, he put the restraints on me and everything. And he didn't. He took me back to state without um, a partner. It was just him and me. Okay. Now I was in the back of the uh, of, of the van, and there's a fence uh, dividing him and me. You know, it's all uh, locked up. But on the ride back. I'm sharing my story, my story with uh, with him because he asked me, you know, so what's what happened to you, and I, and I just go into my whole story with him, and I remember he is sobbing as he's driving, and I remember I, I said to him, I said, uh, man, I ain't gonna tell you not nothing more about my story because you're gonna get us into an, a car accident and I'm never getting home, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we laughed and and all in yards, but he invited me um, when he when we finally got there, he said. Uh, you know, it'd be really great if you have an opportunity to ever come uh, back here and share your story, your testimony. There's a lot of agents that are born again, and they would just love to hear a success story like yours. Um, so uh, I don't know if that uh, agent is still alive. Mm -hmm. I know that if he is and he gets a hold of my book, um, he'll know who he is. Did you ever think... <laughs> That this would be your life when you go back to that 11 year old joining a gang and then those years following that entailed such violence such what sounds like hatred did you ever think your life would be what you're living now no 
it's amazing what God does in, in the life of anyone. And, and it's his grace and it's his mercy that's new every morning. I mean, it, it, he is so faithful and, um, and so true to his word. And when we repent and we give him all of our hearts, all of our mind, all of us, when we do that and we obey his word, it's incredible what he, he will do with your life. Um, I mean, I, this year I got invited to the White House for the uh, prison reform thing and meeting all these people and, and seeing, you know, we're getting emails left and right from prison guards, wardens, police officers, inmates that are coming to Christ through this book. It, it, it is just mind blowing what God is doing. That's God's grace. That's God's favor and, and his mercy that, that has carried me in and carries every one of his children. I, I, I don't deserve anything. I know that I've done so much harm, but then God is there and and, um, and he continues to just love us and, and forgive us and, and puts us in places that we never thought we would ever be. At the end of your book, you give tips to parents, to people as to how to keep their children from being involved in gangs. I know we don't have enough time to go through all of them, but are there one or two of the most important things you could list for us? I think for, um, for the parent, you know, for, for the single parent or for the parents that think that um, there's no hope, maybe their kid is already uh, involved in a gang, maybe they're already in jail, um, that's not the end of uh, of life. And I would say, you know, if you're not a Christian, you're one prayer away from a relationship with Christ. And that prayer is very simple. It's when we repent from our sin and we acknowledge him as our creator, as our God, and we ask for help. And, and you know, God is, has made everything so simple for us to understand. His Bible is very simple. I think humans complicate things when it comes to a relationship with Christ. It's so simple. Um, if, you know, when you're drowning, if you've ever been drowning uh, or uh, in a pool, you couldn't, you didn't know how to be a good swimmer. It's That's not the time that you take out a notepad and start analyzing, how am I going to get out of this? You know, you, immediately the first thing that you say is, God help me. You know, it, it, he's in our, uh, already, uh, whether you like him or not, he's already at work. You know, he, it, while we were yet sinners, Christ, you know, he loved us and he died for us. So he's just there. So, you know, if you're a parent and, and you think that uh, all hope is lost, it's not lost. If there's air in your lungs, cry out to God, ask for his son to come into your heart. And then your prayer becomes effective immediately. That relationship is established with his son and his son, Jesus Christ. He's the only way, the truth and the life. And he will absolutely fight for your kid. He will fight for your for anything in your life. And so be part of your, your kids' lives. It matters. You know, kids really don't need a big truck. They don't need uh, a vacation in Hawaii. They just want you to be there through the, through the hardship, through the good times, through in, the in-betweens. They just want you to be part of their life. And I think that when we do that, it becomes so healthy in bringing up the next generation of, of young leaders in the world. Sound advice. Sound advice. Final question, Casey. What does your family look like now? 
<laughs> what does my family look like? I've been married to um, a believing wife. Uh, uh, July 3rd, we go on, on our 20th year. 20 years. We celebrate 20 years. Uh, 20 years. It's, uh, it's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. And I have my oldest uh, daughter. Her name's Samantha, and she goes to uh, Azusa Pacific University. And then I have my second daughter. Her name's Mia, and she just got accepted to Biola. And then I have, um, she's here. <laughs> and I have my 10-year-old son, Jacob, who uh, is joining his football team in middle school. And we're just having fun. I mean, it, it's just, uh, if you were to ask me, what is my, my treasure? It's these guys. And you're able to be, to them, the daddy you never had. Oh, I wish you could have seen the emotions on Casey's face as he remembered those things that he did in his past. I could feel his pain. I could tell that he was no longer that man who did not value human life. I could tell that he was a man who had been changed by Jesus. Well, here's a few takeaways from my conversation with Casey Diaz. God loves us so much that he will, one, do whatever it takes to get our attention. And then he will also use the most unlikely of people to carry out his plans. All it takes is for us to be willing vessels. And then God also meets us wherever we are. There is no place he cannot reach. Even the shoe, solitary confinement at a maximum security prison. I don't know, but maybe there's someone in your life that you've written off, that you feel has no hope. Well, after hearing Casey's story, I truly hope you reconsider those thoughts, those beliefs. Think about Frances Proctor, one woman who committed to praying for Casey. Think about the impact she had on all the people he reached. Think about it. He reached hundreds of inmates and guards. He became this evangelistic machine. And then when you think about what he's doing today with his book and his speaking, it numbers in the thousands. So what kind of impact can you or I have on that person that we're thinking is hopeless? Maybe we should think about praying for that person instead of criticizing, calling out to God for that person instead of tearing them down. And maybe God will make us a part of someone else's story of victory. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Casey's book, The Shot Caller, check out the show notes on the Unfavorable Odds page at familylife.com slash podcasts. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Casey Diaz, 
I hope you'll consider subscribing to the podcast. You can search for Unfavorable Odds on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you go for podcasts. Oh, and by the way, we'd love to get your feedback and positive reviews are appreciated. And if I can ask you a big favor, will you help us spread the word about this podcast? Maybe think about one or two people you think might enjoy or benefit from listening. Next time on Unfavorable Odds. She asked the question, do you know why you're here? And I said, I'm here because I got test results that didn't uh, look clear. She goes, I'll ask you again. Do you know why you're here? And she was trying to get me to say that I have cancer. And I just, I just couldn't get it out of my mouth. Dr. Renee Rochester, next time. I'm Kim Anthony. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unfavorable Odds. Unfavorable Odds is produced by Family Life and is a part of the Family Life Podcast Network.